Do you think clergy are trustworthy? Yonat Shimron is a reporter for the Religious News Service, and she reported on a new Associated Press poll that came out this week that got circulated among my peers. It finds that Americans believe clergy to be less trustworthy than ever. Yes, doctors, teachers, members in the military, even scientists are viewed more positively than clergy. Our ratings are about the same as that worst of all kind, lawyers. <laughs> Things are getting bad. Now the breakdown, of course, is different for those among whom attend church more than once a month versus those who attend less than once a month or none at all. For those who attend less than once a month or none at all, only 23% trust clergy versus 52% of those who attend church once a month or more. So among you, you so faithful, predestined to attend church in the summertime, you faithful, 57% of you said that clergy were honest and intelligent. What did the other 43% of you think? Do you want to do a book study? I, I, want, I don't know what we want to do. Now one could make intelligent arguments about the correlation and the connected downward spiral of societal trust that clergy have gone down at the same time and along with just about every other government institution post-Vietnam. But the most fascinating, somewhat disturbing, highly entertaining, and wildly perplexing piece of all this to me is how frequent attenders of church are less and less likely to want clergy influence on major life decisions. The AP poll asked, quote, when making important decisions, how often have you consulted a clergy member or religious leader? 13% said they did so often. 31% said sometimes, leaving 56% who said rarely or never. So the issues of family planning, child rearing, sex, careers, financial decision making, medical decision making, or voting, clergy, the poll suggests, are growing irrelevant. Don't worry, Pastor Molly, it seems that we still score decently high on the topics of divorce, marriage, and advice on charitable giving. So in a world where hospitals don't call us, in a world where parishioners often don't ask our advice, whether they should or not, what is my job? I think we can find the answer to that by listening to one of the earliest theological declarations that we have in Holy Writ, the Christ hymn of Colossians. Now across all of ancient literature, not just the Bible, scholars agree that if you find poetry or a song, you are most likely reading some of the most intact, straight out of the voice of the ancients words that you can in those texts. So this hymn is likely one of the most reliable, earliest words of the Christians that were ever spoken long before our scriptures were ever written down, or at least the New Testament. In these words, we hear that Christ is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. Paul says, for in him all things in heaven and earth were created, things visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or powers, all things have been created through him and for him. For he himself is before all things, 
and in him all things hold together. Now, scholar Matthew Fleming reminds us that this is the language of a shared belief system that comes both out of Stoicism, some Greek philosophy, as well as Judaism. This belief that our, our creation comes about through some sort, some sort of uh, intermediary. So God working through, in, in Stoicism, wisdom or Sophia. And you see a little bit of that in Proverbs. Wisdom does this and wisdom does that. In the Judaic tradition, they talk more about the divine law being the intermediary for creation. And by the time we get about 100 or 130 AD, when we get the Gospel of John written down, we have the first chapter of John that is so common to us at Christmas time, right? The word became flesh and dwelled among us. And then Greek logos, it's not just word, it's something more. That this, this structural ontological framing became flesh and dwelled among us. Each one of these traditions additionally believe that each person who is created through these divine intermediaries has the capacity to sense and to locate the divine order through which they were made. So we can sense God because we are made through God. And most importantly, this idea that comes about through both Stoic law and Judaic law, that adhering to the moral shape of that divine order people can live in accordance with God's intentions for creation. Or in other words, live in accordance with Christ Jesus. Christ, our center. These are wonderful things, thanks be to God, but it leads us to ask then, okay, if we're led to adhere to that moral guide, which is Christ, what is Christ? Brian McLaren wrote a book called The Generous Orthodoxy. And he talked about seven types of Jesus that he found in his faith walk. He found the first, a conservative Protestant Jesus, born to die, all about saving him from his sins, but then he felt it was a little too individualistic, too legalistic, and didn't really care about any of the world around him. So then he found Jesus number two, Pentecostal charismatic Jesus, was very present and dramatically involved for the incredible power of the Holy Spirit in every act going on right now, but didn't seem to have much concern for history, tradition, or the rest of creation. McLaren then found the Roman Catholic Jesus that through the Eucharist connected him to these ancient, robust traditions, but he's really turned off to the exclusivism of the Roman Catholic table that is not set up for all. He found the Eastern Orthodox Jesus that emphasized the Trinity that affirmed mystery that seemed stuck or engaged only with pedagogical pieces of the early 500s AD. Icons are beautiful, but they're not the only kind of art, right, Pastor Molly? Then he found the liberal Protestant Jesus. That's us. So concerned about social justice, about the kingdom of God, about oriented to helping solve the world's problems, but sometimes forgets the why behind the what and only becomes a single generation faith. Number six, the Anabaptist Jesus, which focuses on nonviolence and resistance to the empire. Good Lord knows we need more of that right now. And then Jesus number seven, the liberation theology Jesus, constantly confronting Jesus, standing with the poor and the oppressed. A little light sometimes on what does that Jesus mean for my own personal walk. 
Now, is any one of them right? Well, Jesus does seem to be concerned with our personal sinfulness, does work through the Spirit, is rooted in traditions and practices, does dwell in Trinitarian mystery, beckons us to resist evil and stand firmly with the oppressed. It seems that they all got him right in some way. But perhaps the best theology to sum up this universal Christ comes from the singer Martin Gore, the leader of Depeche Mode. Maybe you've heard of Johnny Cash singing a very similar song. Your own personal Jesus, someone to hear your prayers, someone who cares. Of course, I'm singing the Johnny Cash version, you can tell. And then the the big bridge is reach out and touch faith. Remember that AT&T commercial a few decades ago? Reach out and touch someone. Reach out and touch faith. There was a work on that. Now, when asked about this interesting little pop song that became the number one 12-inch single for that time by Warner Brothers, I don't really know what that means. It sounds like they sold lots of copies of this 12-inch, whatever type of media that was. I do know what that is. But Martin Gore explained to Spin Magazine at the time about this personal Jesus. He said, it's about being Jesus for somebody else, someone to give you hope and care. He said, it's how everybody's heart is like a God in some way. Gore said, we play these God-like parts for people, but no one is perfect. And that's not a very balanced view of someone, is it? I think Gore's theology is spot on. Now, historically, Gore could be thrown in the bucket of heretics called the pantheist. Pantheists believe that everything you see is God. Flower is God. Floor is God. Everything is God. That wasn't what Pastor Molly was saying or Gore was saying. What we believe comes something a little bit closer to panantheism. Remember that Gore said that everybody's got a heart like God, or we play God-like parts for people. Now, Gore's belief is that we reflect the divine for each other, and it's confirmed by Paul in this recitation to the church in Colossae. This is a church that was wildly in conflict. All the churches Paul wrote to were wildly in conflict. That's why you got a special letter from Paul. <laughs> and he writes and says, and the words I didn't read in the later scriptures. Now, because of all this, you are to be reconciled with one another too, because remember that hymn I just wrote down for you? We are all reconciled through Christ, who is in all, through all, and for all. Christ is in all, through all, and for all. It's not that we are Jesus, you see, but that somehow Jesus lives inside each and every one of us. This is not remarkable theology to you. You know this. You have sensed it. But we've grown up in a world that hasn't really talked about God in that way. Now, the Stoics had a word for this. They, call, they talked about the spematicoi. Spematicoi was a word talking about God bits. They believe there's a bit of God in everybody. And I think they were on to something. But it got washed away because so many of us grew up learning the Newtonian atomized worldview, very popular over the modern period of Descartes and all this time, these past few hundred years of rational thinking. 
where everything should be able to be observed objectively. Atomized, distinct, separate parts. There might be a little bit of overlap, but mostly the universe around us doesn't affect one another. They're just parts. But in a post-quantum mechanics world where we can't even measure an electron and figure out its location at the same time, or measure the wavelength, I should say, science is finally catching up to what so many faith traditions have known for so long, that the whole world is connected, that every inch of the cosmos can affect one another. We would say that the whole world is sacramental, that all of life is an interconnected web of systems. We find this most true if you've ever done any kind of counseling or premarital counseling. Folks who see one another as two entirely separate beings have a lot harder time dealing with their issues than those who understand the web of relationship that their covenant is a part of. Their families, the way they saw their moms and dads argue in their past, the way their co-workers affect how they spend time, all these networks affect their marriage and all our networks from the moons of Jupiter, to the dust of our own moon, to what we do to the planet around us, all of this is connected. I need to turn to your neighbor now. You can give them a little poke, a gentle poke if you want, make sure they're not sleeping. Say to your neighbor, say neighbor. I, I'm getting a little old, so it's hard to hear you. Say neighbor. Oh, neighbor, I, the Christ in me sees the Christ in you. The Christ in me sees the Christ in you. Richard Rohr shares a short story from a book called A Rocking Horse Catholic by Carol Hauslander. And she describes the spiritual shift she had from that Newtonian atomized worldview where Jesus was something separate, something out there, to seeing Jesus all around her. She says, I was in an underground train, a crowded train, in which all sorts of people jostled together, sitting and strap hanging, workers of every description going home at the end of the day. And quite suddenly I saw with my mind, but as vividly as a wonderful picture, Christ in them all. But I saw more than that. Not only was Christ in every one of them, living in them, dying in them, rejoicing in them, sorrowing in them, but because he was in them and because they were here, the whole world was here too. Here in this underground train, not only the world as it was at that moment, not only all the people in all the countries of the world, but all those people who had lived in the past and all those yet to come. I came out into the street and walked for a long time in the crowds. It was the same here, on every side, and every passerby, everywhere. Christ. She goes on to say, Christ is everywhere. In him, every kind of life has a meaning and has an influence on every other kind of life. Now, why Christ? We talk about a Trinitarian God, Father, Son, and Spirit, Creator, Redeemer, 
and sustainer? Why not talk about this creator who designs the cosmos or the spirit who flows between us? But why, when we go down to visit our relatives outside of the urban centers, do we see a lot more billboards that say Jesus is here to save you than we do billboards that say God or the spirit? Aren't they equally as important? I would argue that's because of our natural tendency towards anthropomorphism. We create the world in our own human image. Think about how long you can go without looking up at a cloud and seeing a set of eyes. Daddy, do you see the ears on that cloud? We're wired that way. The cartoonist of Teddy Roosevelt's famous incident in the early 1900s is famous because he took the bear's eyes and moved them from the side of the bear's head, where they naturally are, to the front of the bear's head, thus enshrining the teddy bear, even though he was shot soon after that picture, that cartoon was made by one of Mr. Roosevelt's aides, but that part doesn't get told as often. We anthropomorphize all the time. God knows well our proclivities for anthropomorphizing, and so God gives us a metaphor for God that's more personal than an almighty creator more active and tangible than a wind and a breath. God gave us a historical manifestation of the universal Christ, Jesus. The word, the logos that became flesh and dwelled among us, full of grace and truth. So what is my job? I think that part of my job is looking for evidence of this universal Christ in a world that tells you that everything is distinct and separate and you should go after as much material goods as you can, and helping us all not just to wear theological lenses, but Christological lenses, being able to help you see the living Christ everywhere. If we don't talk about it, it's going to come up in every inch of our society, and it already is. Anybody see the new Lion King movie that came out? It's okay, me neither. But luckily, it's accessible by Amazon Music and other musical providers. And James Earl Jones, God bless him, has a wonderful piece where he as Mufasa, as the father king, is speaking from the clouds to his son Simba. And he has this to say. Everything you see exists together in a delicate balance. You need to understand that balance and respect all the creatures, from the crawling ant to the leaping antelope. connected in the great circle of life. We are all connected in that great circle of life. It, that little speech by Mufasa changed the course of Simba's life. Maybe it might change yours too. Richard Rohr suggests that the Christian faith in the West has become more about a rational assent to the truth of certain cognitive beliefs 
rather than what it was meant to be, a calm and hopeful trust that God is inherent in all things and that this whole thing is going somewhere good. What would your life look like if you believed that? What would your life look like if you believed that Christ dwells in you? In that most annoying coworker? In the homeless man that we pass without usually speaking to him? What would our lives look like if we believed that God is in the business of taking this whole thing somewhere good? In an age of anxiety and hopelessness, what would it look like if each one of us believed Christ dwells in us? I'm so grateful that I get paid for my job, to help you with your job, to propagate a worldview that is sacramental, that is interconnected, that sees the universal Christ in everyone and everything. And the good news is that if you'll take the time to really look at yourself, you will be able to see Christ looking back at you. Hear these closing words from Derek Walcott's poem, Life After Love. The time will come when, with elation, you will greet yourself arriving at your own door in your own mirror, and each will smile at the other's welcome and say, sit here, eat. You will love again the stranger who was yourself. Give wine, give bread, Give back your heart to itself, to the stranger who has loved you all your life, whom you ignored for another, who knows you by heart. Take down the love letters from the bookshelf, the photographs, the desperate notes. Peel your own image from the mirror. Sit. Feast on your own life. Rohr ends his book with this blessing that I share with you. I hope these words have helped you to experience and to know that the Christ, you, and every stranger are all the same gazing. Thanks be to God, and amen.